1 Kings 17, verse 1. Reading from the English Standard Translation. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come to this text, and Father, we also respect the fact that this text has its proper context. Those things which have come before, those things which come after. And so we pray as we come to this particular verse and all that's contained in it, you would grant us to be those who read your word and interpret your word Uh, even in the way in which you exhorted your people to read and to interpret your word, that we would rightly understand, that we would rightly discern your word of truth. We do pray for this. We also know, Father, that all of Scripture, from the beginning to the end, resonates with your plan of redemption, resonates with Christ. And so we pray that we would not preach a message that is moralism, We pray that we would not preach a message that is antinomianism. We pray that we would not preach a message that is legalism. We pray that we would preach a message that is gospel truth, centered upon your Son and the great grace which saves us. We also pray, Lord, that you would work in us then all that is pleasing to you as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I began this series last week uh, with reference to Elijah and Elijah by quoting from Psalm um, chapter 11, verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Very significant question. Uh, And we began this way last week because I wanted that question to remind us uh, that in the last 50 years, what we might call the foundations of this country and culture in which we live have been uh, essentially destroyed. Uh, The sense of morality and the sense of how we're supposed to be governed uh, seems to have been destroyed. And that foundation was attached very deeply to a Judeo-Christian perspective and an understanding of three things. What it means to be human, uh, what it means to be a moral human being, and what it means to have a moral code that is both objective and true. There is no such understanding that controls or reigns within our culture today. By every standard of measurement, uh, our culture is to be defined now not as simply post-Christian and not as simply uh, secular and not as simply postmodern, but rather all of those, we are also a pagan culture. Uh, There are pockets of Christian communities and pockets of Christian resistance here and there, but we are essentially a pagan culture. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Uh, I made reference last week to the first book of Romans, the first book of Romans, the first chapter within the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, where the Apostle Paul actually sets out uh, the essential characteristics of what paganism looks like. Uh, we can call it paganism because our spiritual forefathers called it pagan paganism, 
And our commentaries still call this paganism. And in Romans chapter 1, we see three essential characteristics. First, paganism is the rejection of the true knowledge of the true God. God is rejected as the creator and moral authority over the world. But that rejection of God doesn't mean that people automatically stop worshiping or automatically stop considering something to be ultimate or consider things not to be their God. Rather, secondly, the worship of nature in lots of different ways, the worship of created things replaces the true worship of the true God. That, that's an essential quality of paganism. The creation and things within the creation are seen as sacred. They're seen as divine. Uh, all of the major forces of nature uh, get worshipped as divine personages. That's where we have polytheism and idolatry. Nature herself, mother nature, is seen as divine, which then says something about the third characteristic that we need to appreciate and what we see in terms of what has won over our culture. At the heart of paganism is always the rejection of God's moral design for human sexuality. Uh, the design of God within our own culture has been replaced by a full sexual liberty. Every sort of pagan sexual practice that God condemned in the Old Testament, and that condemnation is reinforced in the New Testament, Every sort of practice uh, we find at the heart of contemporary paganism, uh, things that are now endorsed by our culture, things that are even made legal within our culture, uh, that God himself has condemned in Scripture. Now, to call the culture pagan does not mean that every self-confessed non-Christian is a self-confessed pagan. What makes a culture pagan is the acceptance and practices of ideas that are pagan, uh, far more than rituals that might be associated with paganism, such as being a Wiccan, for instance. I mean, even if you don't belong to a coven, even if you're not a practicing Wiccan, you could be just as pagan as any Wiccan might ever be. Because if you believe that nature is divine, that all divinity is to be found within nature. And if you also believe that you are entitled to do basically anything you want to morally, as long as you don't hurt anyone, then you are essentially a pagan in your understanding of the world and in your worldview. Now, this application of pagan to our culture is hardly new. At the turn of the 20th century, in fact, specifically in 1898, in Abraham Kuyper's uh, Stone Lectures uh, to the faculty and to the student body of Princeton Theological Seminary, the great Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, as he was lecturing on Calvinism, uh, saw this struggle even then, and he framed it this way. Do I know of another solution of this fundamental world problem, enabling me better to defend my Christian faith in this hour of sharpest conflict against renewed paganism, collecting its forces and gaining day by day? Do not forget, 
that the fundamental contrast has always been, is still, and will be until the end, Christianity and paganism, the idols for the living God. Now, that is why we have set the main theme for the study of Elijah and Elisha this way. Even if paganism has eclipsed the influence of biblical truth in this age and culture, the call of all believers is to remain faithful to the mission of who we are and what we are called to do. Which is to say, who we are and what we are called to do never changes. So in the study, we're going to be engaged in answering the question, you know, if the foundations are being destroyed, what should the righteous do? We're going to look at that question. We're going to answer it essentially by saying who we are, what we're called to do, has never changed. Now, in these stories of Elijah and Elisha, we have this context of God's truth standing over and against paganism. Last week, we looked at King Ahab. That was an important introduction to that period of of world history, that period of, of Israelite history, when Ahab became king of the northern kingdom, because he also became the chief promoter of full-scale paganism. He brought in Baal worship, the male deity god of fertility, along with uh, Asherah, the female goddess of fertility, uh, to fully replace a kind of broken worship of Yahweh, which the northern kingdom had practiced among the previous six kings, beginning with Jeroboam, in which Yahweh was worshipped under the understanding of the golden calves, having brought the people of God out of Israel. The agenda that Ahab promoted and was largely, in in a practical sense, completely successful, the agenda was nothing less than full-scale paganism. The agenda was nothing less than eliminating the name of Yahweh from among the Israelites to replace every aspect of Yahweh worship with the practices of the worship of Baal. But I want us also to realize that within the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, there was a faithful remnant. Uh, Later in the story of Elijah, we find out that God says to him that I have reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That number of people were essentially like an underground church because the spiritual leaders of the country, um, especially Jezebel herself, ruthlessly hunted everyone who was still naming the name of Yahweh to find them and to put them to death. This is an important reminder that God's people have been in such hard times and in such hard places as a minority, powerless in themselves to properly shape the government or to stop the government's rejection of the truth, to stop the government's promotion of what you and I would see as essentially anti-biblical and anti-Christ. That does not change the identity and mission of the people of God. No matter how far the world rejects the truth of God, no matter how far paganism resumes control of our culture, our calling and our mission remains the same. 
It's the very thing that the Apostle Paul prays for with respect to the, Col- uh, the Church of Colossae and Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. That church was itself embroiled in combating the paganism and the influence of that paganism of what might be called first wave Gnosticism. Here is how Paul describes our calling and mission. We are to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we might walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, so that we might be intent upon pleasing him, that we might bear fruit in every good work, that we might grow in our knowledge of God, that we might be strengthened with the power of Christ's glorious might for the sake of endurance and patience, that we might have joy, that we might give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. Thus, today's theme as we look at this text. Although the days are evil, our calling is to a faithful obedience to the one who has translated us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Our mission, our purpose, our calling has not changed. The days are evil, but we are to remain living on a faithful obedience to the one who's translated us out of pagan darkness into the light and life of the kingdom of Christ. Now, if we were to outline this text, as we have, it focuses upon the three main characters that we actually find active or referenced in this text, Ahab, Elijah, and God. Uh, Ahab, who is the servant of Baal, Elijah, who's the servant of God, and God himself, who is the master of evil. Now, so this text This particular text, chapter 17, verse 1, is clearly the introduction of Elijah. But it's also a bridge from chapter 16 where we were introduced to Ahab. So we can't really disconnect uh, these two passages. We can't disconnect chapter 17, verse 1, from chapter 16, verses uh, 29 to 34. So let's read those verses again. 1 Kings 16, 29 to 34. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his day, Ahiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, it's this verse 31 
that gives us the primary description of Ahab as the servant of Baal. In verse 31, we read, Ahab went and served Baal. Now, without rehearsing everything that we said last week, we should at least say this. Ahab is not just an ordinary servant of Baal. He's the king. He's the prime minister of Baal worship. In his long 22-year reign, along with Jezebel, he was so strongly successful in gaining for Baal the, the practice of worship by virtually all of the Israelites, all but 7,000. We should also note that the word Baal itself means master, uh, which by this we can understand that Ahab willingly gave himself to this God so that this God would be his master. But Ahab did not really know who his master was. Ahab did not really grasp the spiritual personage behind Baal. Ahab did not really know who was his true master, the one he was really serving. Now, as I was thinking about this on Friday, it made me think of one of my uh, favorite Bob Dylan songs from his album, Slow Train Coming. Gotta serve somebody. It's a message to non-Christians. Dylan has this insight that non-Christians are actually blind to this matter of service. They're serving someone, but they don't really see it. So he describes all sorts of people, an ambassador in France, a singer on stage, all, all kinds of different people in all kinds of walks of, of life. And he attaches a refrain to every one of his stanzas, which he repeats seven times. And it goes this way. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And Dylan got it right. It is one or the other. Now, what Ahab did not see with clarity was that in rejecting the true God, Yahweh, he was actually serving the devil. He was owned by his master, the devil. And that is true for everyone who rejects the true knowledge of the true God. Whenever everyone lives in a state of rejection against God, he lives in a state of spiritual blindness and spiritual enslavement. If this is you, you are not free to do as you want. You are not free to be who you want. You are blind to the truth that you are actually serving the devil. Now, that's what the Apostle Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 2 in the first three verses. He describes what the Ephesians, when they were lost in paganism, were actually like and what they actually did and why they actually lived the way that he lived. He was describing their spiritual condition and their spiritual enslavement. And he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
In other words, uh, Paul is telling us to live like a pagan, to be a pagan, is to be spiritually blind to one's own spiritual blindness. Those who have rejected serving the true God, nevertheless, still serve somebody. They're serving the devil. The devil is their master. He rules over them through the passions of their flesh. He directs and controls the ungodly desires of their bodies and minds. They may not have any clue that they are in this condition or that in rejecting Christ, they're actually serving the devil. But it is true nonetheless. Now, in light of this, thinking of our calling and mission as Christians, how should we respond? The first thing we have to do is we have to really see that people outside of Christ are lost. They may not be as extreme as Ahab in terms of his evil and his activities, but they are no less lost. And secondly, we need to remember that the very purpose of the church is to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And we need to seek and to pray for those opportunities that enable us to make the truth of Christ known to all those who have need of him. The world may reflect Ahab in various degrees. Our culture may reflect paganism to an ever-increasing depth. It does not change our calling and our mission to be those who would bear light to a darkened world and those who would be salt to a culture that's losing the taste for what is good. Now we consider Elijah. What is outstanding about Elijah is the perhaps polar opposite to what is outstanding about Ahab. Elijah is the servant of the living God, and that's the main thing about Elijah. Now we know that the arrival, at least as the text presents it, the arrival of Elijah is sudden. There's no preamble. There's no buildup. There's precious little introduction. Now, this is somewhat unusual in terms of when a prophet is usually introduced in, in Scripture. But we can think about it this way. Ahab has been reigning for a number of years. He has done all those things that we've already mentioned. At the beginning of his reign, he takes Jezebel, the pagan princess from Sidon, and makes her his wife. And, and actually, with a lot of influence from her, he makes this radical conversion to Baal, and then he does this radical spiritual makeover to all of Israel by building Baal a temple uh, in Samaria, the capital city, thus making the city the spiritual capital as well as the political capital of the northern kingdom. He puts a Baal altar in this temple. Then he makes the female counterpart to Baal, the Asherah, so that now Baal and his consort or wife Asherah have their house to live in. And Ahab the king is the leader of this nation in their pagan worship. It is as if during the several years that have transpired during Ahab's reign, maybe the first decade, 
maybe 12 or 13 years. There has been no public or visible resistance to this spiritual takeover. No resistance to the removal of the name of Yahweh from the public square. You know, no resistance to placing Yahweh with Baal. But now suddenly, resistance arrives. Ahab suddenly appears, and he comes directly to Ahab. Now, stop and think about what this might mean about the ways of God. There are times in history when, when we desperately need God to act, but we haven't seen anything yet. And then God chooses to act, and, and his people have no sense that, that, that this help was coming. Nor is there any idea uh, as to where this help was going to come from or where it was going to be manifested. It was probably like that among the remnant in Israel. All of those that God had reserved who had not bowed their knees to Baal, we have to believe as believers in fact, we can be certain about this, that they were praying for God to act. They were praying for God to do something about what was happening. They were praying against this paganism because they themselves felt helpless. There didn't appear to be anything that they themselves could ever do. Now, as I was thinking about this, it reminded me of praying and participating in prayers for a long time for something to happen. And I'll, I'll confess right at the beginning, praying without much faith. Uh, this happened in um, New Mexico uh, when I was pastoring there. So we go back to about 1984. And one of the members of the congregation uh, came to the elders. The elders had a prayer meeting. We met every week and prayed. And he said, I want you to pray for the fall of the Soviet Union. I want you to pray for the Berlin Wall to come down. I want you to pray for these things. He didn't just leave us with that prayer request. He sent us that prayer request every week. So every week as part of our elders' prayer meeting, this is what we prayed for. Prayed for the Berlin, Berlin Wall to come down. Prayed for the Soviet Union to dissolve. We pray that the Iron Curtain would be no more. And then once a month, uh, he asked for that to be prayed in front of a whole congregation as we prayed for world affairs. And so, you know, we, we did this. We prayed every week. It was his single-minded petition. He never asked us to pray for anything personal. This was his one prayer request. Now, he knew Christians were suffering greatly behind the Iron Curtain. That was his motivation. Five years went by. And then it was November 1989. The Berlin Wall came down. I wasn't expecting it. Christmas Day, 1991, the Soviet Union dissolves. The Republic, the new Republic of Russia begins. 
I thought about that. To me, it was too big. It was too large a thing. And here we were, you know, just a small church, just people praying for something so huge and so big to happen. One man in the church, constantly faithful, constantly encouraging the elders, pray for this one thing. We don't know when and how God is going to act in history. But we must believe that there were many within the remnant who were praying for God to act. And then suddenly, Elijah appears to confront Ahab. Sudden appearance. No prelude. No build-up. No one could see it coming. Elijah shows up, gains his audience with Ahab, and he delivers his one-sentence message that declares to Ahab that although the name of Yahweh might be virtually erased from Israel, Yahweh himself has not disappeared. Now, this verse contains a kind of double reference and identification of Elijah. First, it speaks about Elijah, and then Elijah speaks about himself. And his reference about himself is most significant. But first of all, the writer of 1 Kings gives a very brief background on this man, this prophet. He's simply a Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, which is on the other side of the Jordan River. It is not otherwise a notable place at all in all of Old Testament history. Uh, Elijah is simply someone who's going to be very important, but he's from nowhere. In fact, his name has greater significance in the place from where he's from, because his name Elijah means, my God, Yahweh, is he, or my God is Yahweh. So Elijah shows up, and just imagine, uh, King Ahab, there's a prophet here to see you. What's his name? Well, he says, my God is Yahweh. <laughs> sort of a nice introduction. But Elijah gives something even more important about where he's from and even his name in terms of who he is. It's the identification that truly counts. Here's another way to translate what Elijah says. A little bit different from what it says in the ESV, but it goes this way. As Yahweh lives, the God of Israel, before whom I stand. Stop there. It's this phrase. Before whom I stand. That's what's most significant for this reason. Elijah's true importance, his true significance is found in his relationship with God. This is the most important fact about Elijah. 
What it declares is this, that I, Elijah, am a servant of God. I am a servant of Yahweh, the God that you have tried to erase and replace. I am a servant of this true God, the living God, the true God of Israel. Of course, this is vitally important to validate the message that he's going to give to Ahab. But in any case, Elijah is declaring that what is most important about his life as a human being is this. He stands and takes his stand before Yahweh, the true and the living God. Now, this example of how Elijah defines himself is important for this reason. It is the word of God's instruction and requirement that we who are Christians define ourselves and reveal ourselves to others in the same way that Elijah did. Let me explain this. There are all sorts of things about us, and we can call them the horizontal. There are things about us like our family, husband, wife, children, grandchildren, jobs we have now, jobs we've had before, places where we've lived, hobbies we've enjoyed, books we've read, so forth. All of these things are horizontal. They pertain to this life. Yet they so often connect and sometimes connect deeply with what we share commonly with all other people. And all of these things about us can be so very, very true. But if we are Christians, these are not the essence of who we are. All of this horizontal does not define our identity. Our definition of who we are is not anchored to the horizontal factors of life. Now, in contrast to these horizontal factors, with respect to Elijah, almost none. A Tishbite, Tishbe, which is over in Gilead. That's all the horizontal factors that we are given about him. It's the vertical connection that he states. It's the vertical connection that is so significant. He says to Ahab, I stand before Yahweh, the God who truly lives, the true God of Israel. And in this pagan culture that accuses Christian morality of being painful, and hurtful, and intolerant of sexual minorities, it becomes so easy to bypass this most important aspect of who we are when we are among those who stand with pagan ideas and practices. Yet, who we really are is something we must never deny. It's something of a salvation issue. In Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38, Jesus said this, uh, to the crowd that was surrounding his disciples. He said to all of them, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is why we need to anchor ourselves and anchor our identity in the same way that Elijah did. We need to see ourselves as servants of the living God, servants of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that there is no wisdom about how we relate to pagans and outsiders. Colossians 4, 5 and 6, Paul says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we have to speak. But there's a time and a place and a wisdom by which we would speak to those who don't know Christ. And finally, the third personage in this passage is God the true master of Israel. So we look at Elijah's speech. As the Lord Yahweh, which is Yahweh, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now these words are brief, but there is a large amount of content contained in what God says to Ahab through Elijah. So think about the first readers here. Now think about the faithful Old Testament Jewish believers who first read this account. And they may, have, they may have known the stories in an oral sense, but just imagine them first reading this out of the sacred text. They would have recognized how threatening this content is that God has given to Ahab through Elijah. Because this is what God is saying when he says, no dew nor rain these years, God is threatening a very, very serious drought. This is a farming economy. Uh, there's a threat of great economic uh, hardship and disaster and famine. Uh, in the next chapter, when Elijah goes to confront the prophets of Baal, we read in chapter 18, verse 2, that the famine is severe. And this threat is also going to affect Jezebel's nation. It's also going to affect the Sidonians. But just as significant as the, the threat, a famine, threat to the economy. God is challenging Ahab's God Baal. Now, uh, the reason this is so is described uh, very well by Professor Dale Davis, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, in his commentary on First Kings. So I want to read what he says. He's uh, quoting him. The rain delay will also strike a blow at the alleged prowess of Baal. However one cuts it, Baal was a fertility god, a storm god, 
Though among other life-giving activities, sent rain to fructify the earth. In Canaanite mythology, Lady Asherah thanked El for permitting Baal to have his own palace, since, and this is quoting from Canaanite mythology directly, now Baal will begin the rainy season, the season of wadis in flood, and he will sound his voice in the clouds, flashing his lightning to the earth, unquote. Davis continues, such meteorological displays were signs of Baal's vitality. Elijah's, quote, no do or rain, unquote, then constitutes a challenge to Baal. Ahab and Israel will now be able to see what sort of fertility God Baal is. If he cannot produce in the area of his expertise, in his specialty, his reputation will suffer a shattering blow. Baal's deity will shrivel as the cracks in the fields get wider. Elijah so much as says that Yahweh has declared to shut Baal's faucet off. Yahweh has decreed that Baal will pale. Now, Professor Davis writes uh, delightfully. It's an easy commentary to read because he just... He just throws away all the scholarly terminology, writes in a very popular sense with all the scholarship behind it. But he's pointing out that the first readers of 1 Kings would know these Canaanite stories about Baal. And they would see God as essentially saying this. You worship Baal. You serve him as your master. You think he's the God of the sky and the rain. You think that the dew and the rain come from him. But you will find that he's not able to help you. Baal will have no power to deliver. Now, thirdly, the readers would also connect the words of Elijah to statements in the law of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy. So listen to this from Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 and 17, where God says to Moses, Take care lest your hearts be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord has given you. And then Deuteronomy 28, 23 to 24, repeating something similar. And the heavens over your head will be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down upon you until you are destroyed. Now, what God is threatening here is the imposition of covenant curses because of idolatry uh, to prove uh, that the true God, Yahweh, is the God of Israel. God is threatening these covenant curses. He is essentially saying he is the master who owns Israel by covenant, not Baal. And fourthly, God is also saying this. My servant Elijah will have greater power than Ahab, the servant of Baal. Elijah has been given by God a, a most extraordinary role. He's been given the power of turning on the covenant curse 
turning off the co turning off the covenant blessing and then turning on that blessing again. In essence, this is what Elijah is saying. You, Ahab, stand for Baal. You are the king of this nation. You think you have power. But I, who stand before Yahweh, the living God of Israel, have been given the real power over the dew and the rain. It is not your Baal, the master you serve, who has power. But it is the true God, even the true God of Israel, whom you have provoked to anger. And then suddenly, Elijah leaves. From that day on, for over three years, there is no dew nor any rain. What does this say to us? Well, it says something significant about what God does with his faithful servants, with those who stand before him. In essence, the lesson is this. God gives them service that counts in their day. Now, for a few, for a few servants of God, that service is public. And for a very few, that service is so extraordinary that it changes the course of history. In most others of God's faithful servants, the service is ordinary. But it is always significant. And most of us are ordinary servants. But our service is significant to God and to what God is doing. For we are his workmanship, created unto good works in Christ Jesus, good works which God has prepared in advance for us to walk in them. In all cases, it is God who guides our lives. In all cases, it is God who hears our prayers. It is God who rewards the faith of those who diligently seek him. So we live now clearly in a place in history in Western culture where the government we live under promotes what Christ condemns. That does not change our identity. It does not change the mission of the people of God. No matter how far the world rejects the truth of God, no matter how far paganism will control the culture in our country, our calling, our mission, like that of Elijah, who stands before the living God, that calling never changes. It is the very thing the Apostle Paul has prayed for the church that was combating the pagan influence of the Greco-Roman Empire. Our calling, our mission, and our prayer must always be this, that we would be filled with the knowledge of God and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we would walk in a manner that's worthy of Christ, that we would be intent upon pleasing him, that we would be blessed by him to bear fruit in every good work, that we would truly grow in the knowledge of our God, that we would be strengthened with all the might of the power of the resurrection of Christ from the dead for all perseverance and endurance, and yet still have joy that we would always be given thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. Although the days are evil, our calling is to faithful obedience to the one 
who has translated us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved Son. May it ever be. Amen. Father, we pray what we have just recited from the sacred word, the Apostle Paul's prayer. Truly, Lord, you enable us to be these things, to know these things, to do these things. Enable us to be faithfully obedient to the one who has loved us with an everlasting love. Faithfully obedient to the calling and purpose for which you have saved us. To bring glory to you, to make your truth known in this world. For the name of Jesus. Amen.